Hello and welcome to the Cubits Podcast. I'm Tom Broughton, I'm the founder of Cubits, and in this series I'm speaking to people I like to call emotional utilitarians. People who live lives split between the pragmatic and the romantic. My guest today is a fellow member of the UK's community of spectacle enthusiasts, Claire Goldsmith. Claire is managing director of Oliver Goldsmith, the spectacle company founded by her great-grandfather in the early 20th century. Claire helmed something of a renaissance for the company, revitalising interest in mid-century silhouettes made in the traditional way, and helped guide me as well when I was starting Cubits 10 years ago. I'll be asking Claire about three functional objects from her life and trying to have a conversation not entirely about the intricacies of spectacle design history. Claire. Hello. Hey. If you could tell our audience about your history with uh, spectacles and Oliver Goldsmith. I am uh, a fourth generation of a family-run business. We are still independent and family-owned. My great-grandfather started the company in 1926. He started it with the sole purpose of taking a medical device and putting a bit of personality into it. He felt that something that you wore in such a prominent position daily should have a little bit more thought about it than just being a metal pair of glasses, which everything was back in the 20s. Um, So he started his company to try and inject personality into spectacles. Uh, Your personality, I, I suppose. So it's quite an emotive accessory, really, if you think about it, compared to most accessories. And he did that quite successfully. My grandfather took over from him in the 40s. And by then, plastic had been introduced as a material and color. And so he kind of took that and ran with it and started to do more unusual shapes and more interesting eyewear. And yeah, we became known as the brand that originated the idea of fashion in glasses. And what were, I guess, during that period, what were some of the, I guess, the breakthroughs and and the way that your grandfather, great-grandfather, they kind of started changing that perception of yeah, I think I think the big change was obviously when when we started out, all glasses were metal yeah. um, or real tortoise shell, which is obviously no longer used. And I think the introduction of plastic, which when it first came about, was quite difficult to find. But um, we were based in Soho and apparently the guy in the factory next door to us made buttons for clothing. And my grandfather had heard that he uh, had some of this revolutionary material called plastic and traded some old spectacle frames for some sheets of plastic and went back to his workshop and experimented with making glasses out of plastic. And I think that plastic really allowed color to come into eyewear. Um, That really kind of changed the game from being just a single metal color to being something that you could self-express with and do more fun things with. So I think that was a big sort of step towards the accessory that that is eyewear today. But I think also the idea that we started to kind of work at the same kind of time, obviously film and celebrity was, and music was kind of coming about and we positioned our glasses on the right people at the right time and really sort of started the, the trend and, and sort of for other people to want to emulate eyewear wearers. So like, 
John Lennon and Audrey Hepburn and Michael Caine and, and the people that I sort of really think about defining eyewear as, as, as part of your outfit and not or part of your, your look and your personality, not just a device that you use to see. You know, it was timing and it was, it was innovation and those two things combined kind of put us on the map for being innovators in eyewear. And how did that actually come about? Were they were they customers, or did like your grandfather go and the celebrities? Find apparently, them, apparently he was he was just a bit of a busybody and kind of made himself known to stylists. Um, to this day, actually, there's still a big sign outside that says "Optician." I'm not sure why. On 60 Poland Street was where the the company was born, and yeah, it was just it was just a bit of a thoroughfare for for all those kind of people and their stylists. And I remember my. Uh, uncle telling me that Givenchy gave us a brief for one of Audrey Hepburn's films. And so we would get a brief to say, oh, we're going to be make, doing this film and here are, the, here are the outfits and can you make some eyewear to complement the outfit? It's actually not something we get the time to do anymore. Like we, we, these days, if we get somebody wanting eyewear for a film, they, they tend to phone us, you know, 10 minutes before they need it. It would be so nice if you, you actually got the kind of outfits that you were going to be styling with the glasses, you could really go on to make some of these really iconic looks that we still refer to in our archive now. Weirdly, it's still a bit of an afterthought in film, but back then it was very much part of, you know, building the look. So yeah, we just, I think we really, we were just in the right place at the right time. And we were very good at what we did. So, you know, I mean, there were, obviously there were lots and lots of people making glasses at the time. I think the difference was, we put sort of a name and a, a brand and with that, a lifestyle and an image. So if you wore a pair of Oliver Goldsmith glasses, you were saying a lot more than I can't see. You were sort of showing that you were quite discerning. You were, took some pride in what you put on your face. And so, yeah, it was just, it was just a perfect storm really of, of timing. And when your great-grandfather was setting the company up, what was his background beforehand? Was he coming oh. from a medical he was a rep for a firm called Raphael's Optical. And okay, he yeah. Just, he was just a rep and he just used to go around, you know, with um, a bag, I guess. I mean, I know that our, our first bag, it was a mobile showroom, so it, it looked like a, an ice cream van. And inside it was all kind of fitted out with, with glasses and shelves, a bit like one of your shops, actually. And, and he would sort of drive it around and park it up and people would come out of their store and come into his mobile showroom and order the frames. His first investor, uh, he had an investor and his first investor said to him, um, if I invest in your spectacle business, what are you going to call it? And he said, I'm going to call it Philip Goldsmith. And the investor apparently went, oh, no, I don't like that. What's your middle name? And he went, Oliver. And he goes, call it Oliver Goldsmith and you've got the money. So for many years, it was P. Oliver Goldsmith, but we, we dropped the P in the end. But good to know investors were as demanding as they are yeah, now. Exactly. <laughs> But yeah, that's the story of how the company got off the ground. And then wasn't it, was Ola Gossa Frame was the first pair of spectacles ever on the cover of Vogue, wasn't that? Yeah, we were the first, well, we were the first brand to appear in Vogue um, and sort of named as that. And I think that was kind of a big nod of the fashion industry, you know, the fashion Bible, acknowledging that eyewear was an accessory, as important as a bag and as important as shoes. That was definitely a big moment, I think, for eyewear as an accessory. And then what were some of the kind of the iconic frames that emerged from that period, which became associated with the Goldsmith name? Iconic frames from that period, my goodness, our, our archive is so extensive. It's kind of, nothing had been done yet. 
when you look at sort of glasses today, they come in every shape and every size and every color. Back then, I think it was just kind of, probably by today's standards, quite simple, quite, quite basic design dyewear. It was this kind of chunky acetate. It was also, what's quite funny as you see in the archive, is obviously no machinery. So today, if you make a frame, you know, every frame you make in that production is exactly the same. We've got in our archive the same frame and it may have like 10 different sort of versions of itself, you know, each one a little bit different to the last one, but they're all the same style. And that's because you probably had 10 craftsmen who each one made it in their own kind of style, just sitting along a long workbench. No consistency. Um, yeah, no order. <laughs> But actually, what you find is you quite like, you go and go, oh, I quite like the, the eye on that one and I quite like the temple on that one. And kind of, you know, you, these days we can kind of take the best of, of all the different quirky versions of itself and, and make one really nice sort of definitive, iconic version of it. But yeah, it's a, the archive is huge and we use it constantly as inspiration for what we do today. When I was really going down the kind of rabbit hole of glasses, spectacles, sunglasses, Goldsmith, those gold sort of 50s and 60s Goldsmith frames are the ones that always stood out to me. Yeah. Do you think before that, up until that point, the 30s and 40s, everything was kind of about making a frame small? Yeah. Trying to minimize the rim way and almost trying to hide the visual appearance of a, of a frame itself. Yeah. And then suddenly you got this kind of explosion in the late 50s and early 60s and these absolutely enormous, oversized, yeah. thick, bold, graphic, shapely. Yeah, but I think also men came into the equation in the 50s and the 60s. Before that, women were very much the consumers. Men didn't really participate in fashion. It was, it was you know, a woman's pastime. And department stores, you know, if you look at the history of department stores and how department stores moved to this kind of, um, the way they used to serve customers. And um, it was all very, it was very much a female kind of pastime. And so a lot of the glasses from pre-50s, I find are, are quite, sexless or mm -hmm. feminine or, or genderless, but yeah. not, you know, and, and it wasn't really until the 50s that I start to see kind of men, men's frames and the boldness of that coming, coming through. And, and actually, I, that, that is the, the part of the archive that I play around in the most in our collection um, is the 50s and the 60s. I, I think it was our strongest time. I think kind of th from there on, it all gets quite sort of gets more flamboyant, more out there. And yeah, I think 50s are definitely my favorite and then i guess since then the 50s and 60s yeah. how has the the goldsmith name then moved through the different generations obviously now with you as uh, custodian yeah i mean um you know the the, the 70s definitely had its look our, our 80s archive funny i didn't like it for a very long time it's only recently that i start to look at it and i go oh, actually that's quite cool and that just kind of goes to show you it's just that kind of trend isn't it you I actually saw the mullet is back, you know. It <laughs> makes you wonder if the mullet can be back, if our whole 80s archive could actually work again. Because I know a few years ago I was not into it. But yeah, it, it, goes, it goes all the way up into the 80s and then it stops quite abruptly. And when you look into what was happening in eyewear at the time, you can kind of get this narrative about why it stopped quite abruptly. And it was just literally at the very end of the 70s, licensing became a business model that kicked in and brands coveted brands like Gucci and Dior suddenly entered the eyewear space with their licensed brands and 
for quite some time, you know, people rushed to be able to buy these kind of big name brands that they could finally afford on an accessory. And a brand like Oliver Goldsmith, an independent handcrafted eyewear brand, it just wasn't, it wasn't what people wanted. And we kind of quietly pared back, you know, and, until we stopped really for the, the big hiatus, which was um, 20 years between um, 1985 and what was 1984 actually, in 2004 when I relaunched the brand. It was, a, it was sleeping, it was resting with not a lot of demand for a brand like that. So when I kind of entered the business in 2004, it was very much um, reviving a dormant brand. And uh, I kind of sort of thought to myself at the time, I was, I was, very, I was, I was doing a marketing degree and um, I kind of specialized in my final year. I, I was looking at kind of emotive brands and heritage brands and brands with a story. And I got really kind of like, why did they, you know, cause me to feel so much emotion over them? And then I kind of realized that I had one of those brands in the family and it wasn't around anymore. And I couldn't understand why. So I, I went about kind of putting it all back together. And fortunately, my uncle had kept, you know, every frame we'd ever made and, um, and kind of every bit of press that had ever been written about Oliver Goldsmith in boxes by dates. And so it was, it was a marketing dream to be able to kind of put that together, but also a, a product design dream as well, because you had this incredible back catalogue that pretty much documented the the evolution of eyewear from 1920s all the way through to the mid 80s. And I was just really intoxicated by that because, you know, at the time, I think I was wearing a pair of, I don't know, police sunglasses or a pair of Gucci's knocking around, you know, and, and suddenly I was handling uh, vintage glasses that felt different, looked different. When you put them on, made me feel different. And I couldn't wait to start making that kind of product again. And it was when, when we did sort of bring out the first OG collection in 20 years, it was received so warmly. It, I couldn't actually believe how much memory there still was for Goldsmith and how, and how keen people were actually, how, how done they were with these kind of big name brands and sort of everybody looking the same and, and brandishing the logo down the side and... I mean, I remember someone being absolutely delighted that there was no branding on the outside of our glasses at all, which we still don't do, you know, now. And yeah, I think, you know, the styles speak for themselves. I always feel that someone should comment on your eyewear and say, great glasses, what are they? You shouldn't, you know, need to have the name up the side or whatever. So yeah, putting that back together was great. And over the last, I mean, I've been I've been running it now and it's kind of this phase of its life. So um, since 2004, my contribution to it, I guess, has been, well, first of all, I've always felt quite strongly about sticking to the blueprint that the generations before me had kind of worked to, which was, you know, not to follow trends, mm -hmm. not to be too worried about what everybody else is doing, not to look around too much, just kind of design glasses that work on faces that have great balance, that are incredibly comfortable, that are you know, when I look at the old frames and I look at the components that we used and then today the sea of components that are available, you know, and I just, I always just go, show me the basic ones, show me the simple ones because they are the most comfortable. They are the most functional. They are often, I think, the nicest looking. Mm -hmm. 
I think a lot of things are really over-engineered and I see a lot of beautiful glasses that we would never make because they're just, they are not goldsmith style. But I like the simplicity of what we do and I like just sort of how clean it is. So yeah, my, my uh, contribution, I mean, has been very much about procuring the collection and making sure that it, it represents all these different kind of decades and genres of eyewear that I know that we had a hand in starting. But our collection is timeless. You know, we could be running the same collection in 20 years from now, could have done it 20 years ago. It's, it doesn't date. So yeah, I just have to keep it sort of pure and what it was. And uh, hopefully there'll be a fifth generation that can take it over. And when you were, I guess when you were young, when you were growing up, mm. was, it all, was it around you then, optics and the history of the, the family, or was it something that was kind of kept in the background? It was very much around me. I remember, I remember my dad being, well, my parents being invited. We, we did a lot of glasses for the royal family um, and Princess Margaret, who was, she was quite a party princess. And uh, he would go to the palace like on a morning to sort of fit her for glasses and once they got an invitation to the Christmas party and when they came home, my mum was, was kind of dancing around the bedroom with a pair of like broken glasses. They had like one temple on and she kind of had them balanced. And I remember saying to dad, well, what's mum doing? And he said, oh, they're Princess Diana's glasses. She, because I, I don't know if people do this to you, but people ask me to fix their glasses in all manner of places. <laughs> like I, I go to someone's house for dinner and they're like, oh, I'm so glad you're here. <laughs> I was just wondering, I'm like, I, you know, and weirdly, I do always walk around with a screwdriver kit on me and, <laughs> and give me a hairdryer and I can adjust any acetate frame for you. So um, quite often you'll find me upstairs with someone's hairdryer doing a frame adjustment. But it made me laugh that even, even Princess Diana wasn't, wasn't, uh, didn't have a problem with going, oh, so glad you're here. <laughs> bought these I sat on them yesterday and um we got them repaired for her and and you know our, our archives kind of full of old bits and bobs I've got a whole thing that's got Princess Margaret it's got all these like broken up bits of frame and Grace Kelly's broken up bits of frames and uh, you know this kind of incredibly powerful bits of history yeah. in our archive not not just frames just you know letters written to us by Princess Diana thanking, for, thanking us for the glasses and stuff. So I definitely remember that. And I remember my dad always having these huge sample bags and people coming around to the house and trying on glasses. Nothing's changed. I mean, like, just, just this weekend, I had to bring a sample bag home just because somebody really wanted to get some new glasses. It's always, it's always a pleasure. It, you know, it doesn't, it's, it's, never a, it's never a problem. Um, it's... Yeah, it's just such an interactive accessory. I, I can't imagine anyone making shoes or belts yeah. or anything else to have, you know, to have such a kind of passionate customer base of people yeah. when, it, when they want it, they, you know, they've got to have it. But I, I remember one of the first times we met, maybe the first time, where I can't, had I just like emailed you out the blue or I can't remember, but I remember coming <laughs> over to your place on, it's All Saints Road? Yeah. And, yeah. Sit, and you showing me the... Yeah, the archive and that, that book, the order book or the signing yeah, in yeah, book. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. it was just like every name and from such a um, heterogeneous range of like backgrounds and industries. Yeah. Films and music and politics and, and yeah. culture. And the idea that there was this like, think this line that threaded it all, all together, which was, yeah, Oliver Goldsmith and eyewear. Yeah, it's, it's like a person. I mean, you know, the, the company is like, it's like having 
a person around you the whole time. It's, it's so much more than just a brand. And people's affection for what we make and what we do, you feel that all the time. Um, the way people collect their goldsmith glasses, the way they buy multiple pairs of them and, and add them to their collection um, is a kind of a pride in that, you know, and, and I love that, you know, it makes me feel like what we do isn't throw away and it isn't because, yeah. you know, we live in a world where we're constantly encouraged to, to throw away and buy new, throw away and buy new. That is literally the opposite message that that we give. Um, we always say, you know, your first pair of Oliver Goldsmiths are your first pair and, and it's the beginning of your collection of great glasses and great eyewear. But I very much, you know, like I was, I, was, I wear other people's glasses as well. Um, and somebody questioned me the other day, I was wearing a pair, I wear them generally when I'm not, you know, out and about with too many people. Someone said, oh, what? why are you wearing someone else's glasses? And I said, well, because I love glasses. And if someone makes a really fantastic pair of glasses, I've got great admiration and respect for that. And I, I want to wear their glasses. And so it's, just, it's like being um, a musician. If you make music, you don't just sit there all day and listen to your own music. You, you like music. So, um, so I've got quite an extensive collection of other people's glasses as well. Um, and I will often recommend people in the direction of other people's glasses. If I have a, you know, I might have sent a few people to Cubits <laughs> over the years. But, but yeah, I think it, it, because I sit within such an old brand, I mean, we turn 100 in two years. And I think we are the oldest still independently owned brand in the industry. I'm not sure that there's anyone older than us that's still run by the original family. But it kind of puts you in um, not a very threatened position. Like you, you kind of feel like you can put your arms around people and go, you should have a look at these guys. Mm. They're great. And in my opinion, these are really good as well. And I quite like sharing that knowledge about what we do. And I can only do that because I come from a, a background and I've obviously got this generational learning behind me. So whilst I've not done it for a hundred years, I do feel like we've got like a hundred years worth of experience in it. So yeah, I, I love being sort of in the, the position we're in in this industry. Sometimes, you know, you kind of get envious and I guess it's exactly the same in life when you see something younger and cooler and better looking than you and whatever, but it's more a case of, oh, I wish, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a nice envy. It's just an aged envy. I guess like that, if you're coming up to 20 years then since you relaunched it. I'm personally coming up to 20 years, exactly. Yeah, I, um, I suppose it'll be 21 years when we, when we celebrate the birthday. So that's kind of the, the big landmark that I'm kind of, I'm looking forward to driving the brand over its centennial birthday. I think it's quite an achievement on many levels in this world and, and the way sort of commerce goes and industry goes. But yeah, it will be, it'll be quite a lot of ticks on the, uh, on the box. I've got, got the brand over a hundred years, done a good 20 years myself. I turn 50. It's all happening at the same time. So, uh, so yeah, it will be um, quite a thing to celebrate. And what, how are you going to do that? How are you going to mark 100 years of all of Gosford? So when we turned 90, we launched a collection called Decades 90. And, uh, and it was a collection, it was a one-off, and it was a style. We designed a style that represented every decade that Oliver Goldsmith had been around. And we launched it, and, and it was gone in like two months. It was like sold out and... Mm. And then, you know, another 10 years has rolled on. So, uh, so I think we, we're 
going to uh, do something called Decades 100 and we're going we're gonna to go again and we're going to take a perhaps slightly different look at each decade and take a slightly different angle as to what was going on in the 1920s, what was going on in the 1930s. It's a beautiful research project to do around each decade that you get to do. And we've got some kind of like a couple of extra decades to add to it um, this time. So it will be uh, last time it was like 10, this time it'll be like 12 with the final decade being like the 21st century and beyond and the future. A little bit of a sign off from us as to hopefully we'll still be here doing this, but, um, but kind of what does the future of eyewear, where's it going? What's it gonna involve? What's it gonna look like? How are things like, I don't know, you know, like sustainability going to factor into, into eyewear? And I've put together a really cool team of designers that are all very active and, and very successful and in their own right as eyewear designers. And so we've invited them to guest design for this Decades 100 collection. So hopefully that will be uh, coming out in the 100th birthday year. And it will, when you line up the sort of Decades 100 collection, it, it will literally shows you kind of like the evolution of eyewear over our, our entire life of being here. And then I I guess we'll have to have a party. Of course. Because, you know, so I, the Victoria and Albert Museum hold the most extensive collection of Oliver Golds, vintage Oliver Goldsmith. They hold the best ones. We donated them many years ago because we figured that yeah, the v and have a much better footfall than we do in Notting Hill. And we wanted the world to be able to see, you know, kind of our contribution uh, to the eyewear, the accessory that is eyewear. So it would be great if we can kind of figure that out and do a really fabulous birthday party with the V&A, with the best of our sort of rarest, most vintage rare pieces. And then I'm sure there'll be a few other things to go off in the year. But. And do you have, uh, of all those decades, do you have a favourite? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of back to what we were saying earlier. It's definitely kind of the, the 40s. Or the, I would, if you pushed me, I'd say 50s. The 50s for me, both male and female, there's so much. There's so much going on in that decade. It, we're almost spoiled for choice as to what to develop. I mean, for decades ninety, we went with a brow bar, you know, kind of rimless, sort of rimless bottom, that kind of a look. I think this time, decades one hundred, we'll probably go female and kind of really go cat eye or something. You know, there, there was. Maybe we'll do both. I don't know. But we were definitely spoiled for choice when doing the research around the 50s. Other decades are, are tricky, you know, sort of 2000. 2000 is a tough one because what was going on then? It was just kind of, I don't know. A, a, I think maybe it was probably retro inspired, yeah. vintage inspired. But I suppose it's, culturally what was going on as well. It was kind of leading. I don't know what were people were doing. This yeah. Coldplay. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, some some decades are easier than others. I know we struggled with '90s last time, and uh, and this time round '90s is just like one of the funnest decades we can get we yeah. can get into. Um, it's funny how, you know, I, I look at the little sort of little police glasses that I was wearing in the '90s that I thought were so awful, and now I'm looking at them thinking, oh, actually, quite cool. Actually, I feel like we could do something quite good with those. And strange how perspective changes as time goes on. But for an eyewear lover, it's it's like one of the the research part is without doubt the best thing about creating a decades collection because, you know, you've just got free reign. I've got every book that was ever, you know, yeah. written about glasses. The mood boards are just awesome. I mean, I would just frame them and turn them into prints, you know. It's just kind of, it's a great story. 
But then I think there's a sort of romance to it because a lot of people don't know don't know the stories. They've not no. really, they're still not really been told yet. No, and there's more than one story in each decade. I mean, last time for the 1940s, we did an aviator um, and it was kind of based on sort of aviation and pilots and how Ray-Ban used to give out the military-issued uh, aviators. And we discovered that the little plastic bit on top of the aviator was known as the general's brow bar. And I was sort of further digging around, you know, it was kind of like it showed your ranking. So if you were a junior, you'd have an aviator without the general's brow bar. And obviously, as you climbed the ranks, you'd get one with. And we put all that story into, into the packaging of the frame as well. So that when you buy a pair, you, you kind of get that story. And we'll do the same again. Um, because that's the thing with glasses is I do find that frames come with stories and mm-hmm. people and those people come with stories and you can, it's, you know, it's like a, it's like a tree. You can kind of just off one pair of specs, create a whole, yeah, story. Where do you see your, yourself fitting on that kind of axis of like from the very functional to the very beautiful? I see us sitting literally, if we, if we were a stick on a, on a point, it would be like the most perfectly balanced. It, it, we, in, in our, I rarely put on a pair of Oliver Goldsmiths that don't do exactly what they're meant to do and aren't incredibly comfortable and well-balanced. And I know that sounds a bit nerdy and a bit like, it's not the sexy end of talking about glasses, like balance is, but balance is so important. People complain, oh, this leaves marks on my nose or oh, after I've worn them for a few hours, they kind of hurt back here. Something can be as gorgeous as you like, but if it hurts, it, it gets to a point where you're gonna take it off and you, you, it's not going to continue to be that part of you. And I just find that sort of within the OG archive, it's just every frame looks great and does what it's meant to do perfectly. And that's not easy to do because if it was, everyone would be doing it. Everyone would be making very, you know, brilliantly comfortable, perfectly sitting, you know, gorgeous, um, impactful frames, but they're, but they're not. Um, I mean, just the other day I was, uh, I was in a department store in London, mooching around and I go through, through the eyewear department and it was like the least imaginative eyewear selection I've ever seen in my life. Big names. And every pair I put on was so poorly fitting, just, I mean, honestly, uh, I, I couldn't actually believe that these frames sold, that anyone could ever put them on and go, oh, yeah, totally. Oh, you know, and then you look and they sit high or they sit weird or, um, and then, and then, yeah, it's just, you just kind of realize that it, it's an, it is very difficult to do that. And, and so I don't take our design archive for granted. Mm. Like I'm constantly crawling over the detail to try and work out why is this frame so comfortable? How have we done that? But I guess you've got, because one of the things that really surprised me when I was like stumbling into the industry yeah. was how disconnected the people who were designing the product were from the people actually wearing them. Yeah. They were going through brands and distributors and retailers and there were sort of four or five steps between. But I guess what's amazing about your, your the, the family archive, you've got decades and decades and decades of direct interaction between pro- the product designer and the maker and the actual ultimate wearer. Yeah, totally. And, uh, you know, I say this all the time, it's, it's a hundred, it's a generational learning yeah. that we've got here. 
Um, and you, you can't buy that. You can't fabricate that. You can't rush that. And so I'm always quite respectful to kind of understand when we're designing glasses today, how to extract those things. And, and I don't think we always do. I mean, sometimes we just look at a frame and we just go, I've got no idea why that works. Just got no idea. I mean, it's absolutely weird in every way. And then you put it on and it just follows the face and it's just yeah, functional and beautiful in equal measure. So, uh, so yeah, we just, we, we try and replicate that as much as we can. Outside of glasses, mm -hmm. uh, is there anything you collect? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think it's probably well known that I, uh, that I collect trainers, but I, f I feel like my, my trainer collection is maturing and slowing down somewhat. Um, I was, I was talking to someone the other day about age appropriate trainers. These days, um, I've got a son who's taken on my, my enjoyment of collecting trainers, although he hasn't got the money to do it yet. But sometimes when I see something really great that I feel like we ha I have to have, but I'm just maybe, it's maybe a younger person's trainer, I'll send it his way. So yes, trainers is, is a collection, but also um, I collect old technology. I've got one of those, you know, those original like, you know, I've got my mom's original like Motorola phone and I've got a real thing for old technology, old computers. Um, I don't know why. I don't know what it is. And yeah, and so technology, I would say I, I collect. I'd collect cars if I could. <laughs> uh, that's interesting though, because I guess collecting old technology doesn't have a huge function now. No. So what, what is it you're drawn to? Is it the aesthetic of the way yeah. the technology was designed? Yeah, I like the way, I like, I like the design. I like how ridiculous a lot of it is. Um, especially like, you know, when you get to look back on it. I mean, I remember w when my mom first got that Motorola phone and I was in a secondhand jean shop and it rang. And I remember being so embarrassed going, oh my God, oh my God, mum, you're so embarrassing with your phone. And it was for me. And she answered it with like two hands and, uh, and then handed it over to me. Just, uh, yeah, just a ridiculous thing. Or, or even when you look at sort of, you know, the, the first kind of Macs, which was the first computer that, yeah. that was ever really for domestic use. I mean, up until then, it had been only something businesses had. You know, huge, clunky things with screens that went like so far back. And um, yeah, I like how ridiculous it is a little bit. And what, what is it about trainers that draw you to them? You know, many years ago, I decided that I wasn't going to be a high heel wearer. But I did realize that I was probably going to have to be presenting myself in some kind of public capacity. And so I decided that if I was going to wear trainers, I was going to wear good ones. And I just started, I think I just started kind of being a bit more discerning about sort of the trainers that I bought and wanted to know, you know more about them and I don't know I just took a bit more time it wasn't it wasn't just a case of of buying a pair of sneakers and and wearing them and then I just got a bit kind of intoxicated by you know just relatively affordable as mm -hmm. well trainers you know it's, it's not the world's most expensive thing to want to collect so you can build quite a collection quite quite quickly and and now I kind of uh I've got like a a trainer wall I installed a trainer wall in my home, uh, only for me. It, you know, it looks like an art exhibition, but it kind of documents my my journey through foot through footwear and trainers. And I've got you know favorite one. I've got trainers I've never worn because 
they're too nice and too rare and I don't want to wear them. It's not that they were super expensive, it's just that they only made a few of them and I was lucky enough to get a pair and I just don't, won't ever wear them. I know to some people that's kind of, they don't get it. I think if I could, if I could start another company, I might, I might consider a trainer company. Mind you, that's a saturated market, isn't that? That's yeah, a, but but also, think... weirdly, it's the big brands that still rule in, yeah. in, the, in the trainer world. Um, but, but don't you think there's a kind of, in a weird way, similarity between glasses and, and trainers? And, you know, they both have a history and yeah, something definitely. extremely functional. Yeah. Obviously, with trainers, it's circuit training. Glasses, yeah. it's seeing. Yeah. And yeah, probably trainers are a few decades ahead of glasses in terms of their kind of the way they've bloomed into these sort of cultural products that took so that took so many different things. Definitely, definitely. And um, I think, you know, I was watching that film Air, you know, and it's kind of you, you, you realise that, yeah, the history of trainers is absolutely loaded with, with a ton of emotive and generational history. So, yeah, I, uh, I've actually got one, one of my favourite pairs are just my scuffed up white, like the classic chucks, you know, just... And, and I like the fact that they're really dirty and that they're really worn and they're just kind of like flopped on the shelf because if they were pristine, they wouldn't be right. But the idea that they were like basketball shoes and break your ankle in those today if you were to wear those kind of thing. But yeah, I do think they're similar. And is there any, is there, are there any objects that you don't own that you wish you could own? I have a lifelong desire to own a, a really lovely vintage car. I mean, I got this close to buy one a few years ago. And my husband said to me, what are you gonna do with that? Where are you gonna park it? And how often are you gonna drive it? And he killed my dream with practicality. Um, and if I had bought that car for, for the three and a half thousand pounds that it was, it was, a, it was an MG Roadster in British racing green with all the chrome, it was absolutely perfect. Um, leather seats were perfect in it, it was beautiful. I would have made a decent amount of return on my investment today. So, um, so I'm not quite sure his practicality was yeah. right, but yeah, I will. That's, that's something I've, I've, I've got a thing about, as I say, I love cars, I love trainers, and I love old technology. And those are three areas that I have always loved. I think that comes from my father, the cars actually. He was a bit of a car collector. And all three perfect examples of emotionally utilitarian objects. And I guess so. So you've kindly brought in three, or more than three, uh, three different types, three types. of uh, <laughs> objects which yeah. represent both the functional yeah. and the romantic. Could you show us your first object and mm -hmm. take us through it? I will show you my first object. I will start with the Mini. Obviously, the Mini is a car steeped in uh, history and heritage. I bought myself an electric one which is about as a modern version of this car that you can get. And I just think that I use it every day. I think that they've done a phenomenal job of keeping it true to its original design features. I think that the whole sort of the electric side of it is a, is a way of taking, you know, something very current and then merging it into something very classic. I mean, it's got the most terrible distant performance ratio. I mean, you really, if you were looking for a good electric car, you probably wouldn't buy an electric Mini. I think it does about 80 miles to a full charge. But 
I have never loved a car more. It's the best car I have ever bought myself. I love it. But just all its little details and all its little features and it's very British. It feels very kind of, feels very on brand for me as a person. And as I said, I love cars. I've always loved cars. I haven't got a vintage one yet, but I have got a reincarnation of a vintage one. So what is it, I guess, aesthetically that draws you to the to the mini? Just each part of it, when I look at it, I just think, oh, that's really nicely thought about. That's a really good interpretation of something old into something new. And bearing in mind, I do that every day. You know, one of the biggest challenges with Oliver Goldsmith is how to keep the brand relevant. You don't want to just be an old brand. You don't want to just be making old things. You want to be taking inspiration from the past, but you also want to be relevant to the future as well. Um, and I think it's just probably uh, an appreciation, admiration for how they've done it and, and its British roots and kind of, I think it looks like a British car. Yeah. And the fact it's playing on its more diminutive nature as well, that feels quite British, doesn't it? Yeah, It's almost totally. self-deprecation in it's the vehicle. It's absolutely self, because it's little. Yeah. You know, it's not like, a, you know, going out there, showing off in a Tesla kind of way. Yeah. It's, um, it's little, it's nippy, but it's at the same time, I mean, someone saw that I drove a Mini uh, not so long ago and they looked at me and they went, ah, it figures, yeah. <laughs> you know, like it, they know me, they know what I'm about, they know sort of where my heart is and they know that I'm staunchly British. I'd never live anywhere else, you know, I, I love being a Brit. And I know that's not always a great thing in everyone's mind and I'm cool with that. So, so yeah, it's, it's totally like the me car, perfect match, perfect marriage. And I think does, it has a history where it came from, I think it was originally designed because there was a, oil, a petrol shortage because of the Suez Canal. I don't know. Crisis, and, they, and they basically couldn't get enough. Suddenly for the first time, the whole, the idea was just to make bigger and bigger and bigger vehicles and okay. suddenly had this shortage of petrol. So they thought we need to make a car with a smaller engine. How do we subvert the idea that cars need to be bigger? Mm -hmm. And then that led to the Mini. So I love the idea that something so beautiful comes from an extremely functional need basically. Brilliant. Time. I didn't know that. You have just added more to the love of my Mini. I just hope it's true. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Claire. And uh, tell us about your next object. My next object is something I use every single day. It comes in the form of this olive oil dispenser, but it's not the dispenser so much. It's the perfect pour. So there's something about the way that this spout is designed that when you pour the olive oil, it's like a kiss. <laughs> I, 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 can't, I can't explain it. It is, and you'll know, because I'm gonna give this to you. This is yours now. Yeah. Um, you just flip it up, fill it with oil, and the way it drizzles, it doesn't drip. The perfect pour, it's just a small, perfect, easy thing in life, because so much is not easy or simple or smooth or drip-free. And I am satisfied every time I pour olive oil with it to the point where I have bought this for numerous people. I take it to dinner parties and I give it to people. And then they phone me and they go, God, love that olive oil dispenser. I think it costs five pounds. <laughs> I found it in an Italian market originally, but now you can find them, find them online as you do. But um, yeah, the perfect pour is one of those small pleasures in life. And I do, it's, it's a beautiful object too, right? It is, I mean, listen, it's, it's very nicely designed. It looks, you know, it's functional. It looks nice. It does what it's meant to do in the most perfect way. But when you see how drip-free it is, you'll phone me. 
you'll be like, mm. <laughs> um, it reminds me a bit of another kind of 19th or uh, 20th century rather beautiful bit of Italian design, the mocha pot, which I yes. think is yes, definitely. similar. I own a mocha pot. I make coffee in a mocha pot quite regularly and it is a bit of a labour of love to do it, but it's worth it every time. But yeah, not everything in life has to be a physical object. Sometimes something perfect and functional can be the act of what it does as opposed to the object itself. Beautiful. So, Thank you, Claire. There you go. And uh, moving on to your final object or selection of objects. My final selection of objects is, again, something that's absolutely essential to life. Use it every single day is the phone, is, is the iPhone. Having mentioned I'm a bit of a collector of technology, I am proud or not proud to say I have every single iPhone that iPhone have ever made. Um, and starting with sort of the original Pebble, which for me was just, I think, the best design of them all. An item that both changed, improved and destroyed our lives <laughs> all at the same time. Quite amazing how it could achieve all of that. I mean, life has never been the same since one of these came out. And it does make you sort of wonder just where the world is going with technology and, and with iPhone. Incredibly intuitive and at the same time, just so ergonomically designed and, and you know, and, and as you kind of go through the sort of evolution of this piece of technology, it remains beautiful and it changes a lot, gets bigger and then kind of, I think in more recent years, it's kind of got smaller again and they've almost tried to get back to this original design of this little pebble that's sat in your hand. But I don't think any of us had any idea just how much that was going to change our lives, our world, the generations ahead of us. But I think the idea of kind of lining up this, this disruptive and, and life improving at the same time bit of technology and kind of, you know, at home, I kind of have them all out, you know, along, along a wall. Um, it's, just, it's just a weird little thing that I, I take some pleasure in. And, as, and actually, as, as they get older and older, it's that original one that becomes more and more precious as kind of a real defining um, um, moment. Why that specifically? I just, it, was I just, it was the first and it was, and I just, I don't know. I just think it was um, just the kind of shaping of it as yeah. well, isn't it? It was just, just a little pebble. I mean, now there's so much harder in your hand. There's so much, so much more of a, a hard piece of technology. And matter of fact, I feel, a, I, I feel no emotion for my iPhone today to the point where now probably I'm giving them to my kids when I'm done with my, I, I, feel, like I've, I feel like I've got the set, like what they're doing from here on is all a bit, it's become a bit more just technology, just, you know, a, a piece of hardware. I'm not sure they're quite as well thought about as they mm. used to be. And I'm not sure anyone spends quite as much time, you know, worrying about how soft that line is and how that might feel in your hand. And, but yeah, I think, uh, I think it just, it's kind of what it represents as well. And the beginning of something so huge, a technological revolution, um, the, you know, we were there for. Do, do you just keep them in the box? Do you get them out? Do you um, lay them all out on the <laughs> side? And... Well, I did. I got them out. I got them out not so long ago um, just to kind of uh, to show my kids, actually. And um, I've actually got phones. It was like pre-iPhone. Uh, the, question, the question my son asked me was, how did you make arrangements before mobile phones? I literally couldn't figure out 
how two people would ever come to be together. I said, well, you used to phone them, make the plan, and then put down the phone and go to the plan. <laughs> and there would be nothing that would happen in the middle. And so, yeah, I started sort of getting out, you know, the big bulky phone, the Motorola, and uh, kind of explaining to them how, how it had come about and how, why Carphone Warehouse is called Carphone Warehouse. It used to literally be a handset with a curly coil in, in your car. Um, a, a concept to them that's just totally, you know, lost, really. We're the only generation that will ever know the world before technology yeah. and after it. That's quite a unique perspective to have. Well, it blows my mind to think that when these were coming out for the first time, it's when the Conservatives were just coming into power in the UK and they've been in power ever since. Is that, is that so? Yeah. They've been in power ever since? 2000 and late, yeah, late noughties. Gosh, yeah. And uh, what excellent work they've done in that time. <laughs> <laughs>